Welcome to Music and the Church, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, and today I am delighted to bring you a conversation with Dr. J.J. Wright. J.J. directs the University of Notre Dame Folk Choir, which is one of America's most influential Catholic music ensembles. He is a Grammy Award-winning jazz musician, composer of O Emanuel, an album which debuted at the top of the Billboard classical charts, and he's also a scholar of sacred music. In our conversation, JJ and I talk about his journey from military band member to directing the Notre Dame Folk Choir, and how his jazz skills and sacred musicianship have complemented each other. We also talk about how the music we make can reflect our deepest beliefs about what the church is the capital C church. What does the music of the church sound like? What does sacred music sound like if we believe the church is Christians at all times and in all places? Here's JJ Wright. Let's start by talking about your work and your journey from the Naval Academy Band to Notre Dame. Like, how did you get from one place to another? Where are you now? Well, you know, I, I started out playing music, playing the piano, classical piano, when I was about 10 years old. And um, by the time I was 14 or 15, I knew that I wanted to be a musician for my career. So um, as I was finishing up high school, I uh, looked at some different music schools and ended up going to IU Bloomington for a year uh, to study jazz piano. Um, And while I was at school, I kind of realized that uh, both I wasn't ready to, to actually learn at school and that I really was hoping to get some professional experience. So you know, I left. I left school after the year, and I kind of was just like, you know what, I need to find some places to work. And so I went out on a cruise ship for six months. I worked on a carnival ship, um, played in the show band, and you know, played jazz sets and that kind of stuff. Um, And then right when I got off the ship, I auditioned for this um, for this job in the Naval Academy band and was able to get the job. And so that job was, uh, was really great. I was super young when I got it. I was 19. And the average age in the, in the group was probably 35. And is this like, does this mean you joined the Navy? It does, yeah. I, um, I went to boot camp and, and did the full training that any other person who gets into the Navy does. Um, but with this job, you, you auditioned for a specific billet, a specific spot. So so as soon as boot camp was over, I was transferred to my duty station, which was pre-assigned, and um, I started work. You know, the day I got out of boot camp in the Naval Academy band. Mm-hmm. And it's not something where like you were transferred every two years. Like I grew up in a military family, and we lived in a lot of places. But that's not that's not what this is, right? No, yeah, it's uh, when when you get a job like this, it's called a permanent duty station, so you mm-hmm. can stay in that spot your whole career if you like. Cool. Yeah. So after um, so while I was in the Navy, I was kind of. You know, I, I, we did all kinds of different jobs and it was like a utility position. So uh, one night I would play at the superintendent's house for some kind of party he was having. And then the next morning um, I would play bass drum in the marching band. And that afternoon we would have rehearsal for a concert band concert. And I would, you know, play the, play the piano on some parts or I would fake harp parts on the keyboard. And then we might have a big band concert that night. So we kind of were all over the place with, with the different types of music that we did in the band. And all the while, while I was in the Navy, uh, I was working throughout the DC Baltimore area, um, just playing for all kinds of different gigs and clubs and 
um, society type gigs. And it was a great time to just get a ton of experience playing in as many different situations as there were. So did you get into jazz like via like high school jazz groups? Cause like, like I remember you said, said that you started out as a, as a classical pianist and was this just like, you were just interested in that or how did that, how did that happen for you? Yeah, I, I had a group of friends in high school who were really into jazz and I didn't really get it at the time, but I started playing in the, the jazz band in high school. And then, you know, I started to be interested in it and my parents got me lessons, jazz piano lessons. Oh, cool. So I was able to start studying with a couple guys around Buffalo and, um, and I didn't really catch the bug until about a year later when I heard a specific jazz recording in the radio. And I just thought, you know, there's, there's something about this that I, I want to be able to understand. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, this music sounds terrible. You know, like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? That, but I could, I could sense the sort of telepathy that was going on while they were playing. And I just wanted to understand. It was like hearing people speak... Uh, speak Russian and just wanting to know what they were saying or something. Oh, that's cool. So you're in the Navy band, the Navy Academy band. And then where did you go from there? So one of my dreams was, uh, when I was growing up was to, was to move to New York to really learn how to play jazz with, in, in the place where, um, where the best jazz musicians live. And so all through my time in the Navy, I was kind of hoping when I finished this job, I, I could move to New York, maybe. And, um, and there was some really great providential things that happened that enabled this move. But my wife and I, um, we met while I was in the Navy, and she was brave enough to, um, to go on this journey with me for me to, to leave a stable job and to move to New York City to finish yeah. my undergraduate at the new school. And so we kind of just like jumped in with both feet and and went for it. And we, we both started our fa- we started our family when we moved to New York City. And I started, you know, going to school and taking school really seriously at the same time. So um, it was sort of a big move for us. Yeah, I bet. But yeah, once once we were in New York, I um, the, the sort of sub journey that was happening all through this was that I, uh, in terms of my relationship to sacred music and my faith, I, when I was at IU, my freshman year, I you know, I grew up Catholic and um, I, I grew up always sort of involved with church music. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, by the time I got to high school, I was, I was the accompanist for the, one of the liturgical choirs and um, would sing with them. And, um, and then I got a church job when I was 16, sort of playing in, mm-hmm. a, in a little church in Buffalo. And, but, you know, I, I kind of just lost touch with the whole thing when I went to my freshman year of college. And I wasn't really interested in, in participating in my faith anymore. I didn't, it just, I, I lost the connection with, with any type of uh, personal relationship with it. Mm. Um, and so then when I got into the Navy, it was still, you know, I, I was not interested at all. I didn't go to church. I wasn't interested in sacred music. And eventually, you know, I think at some point my friend, it was my roommate, and he was also the guy who told me about the job. Uh, he's a great friend of mine. You know, he, he was reading a lot of C.S. Lewis and he said, um, hey, J.J., he gave me a copy of Mere Christianity. And he said, I think you'd really like this book. And um, Did you laugh? I did. <laughs> I was kind of like, well, that's nice, Cam. Thanks, you know. And, you know, at, at that point, I was sort of softened a little bit on, on where I was at with my faith and everything. But um, I took the book and I read it and it just blew me away. I remember when I was, I was probably 21 or 22 and... 
um, from there, I was just like, had this insatiable appetite for reading C.S. Lewis and uh, read as much as I could and then moved on to Chesterton. And, and from there, I was, I was actually starting to develop my own understanding of my faith and what it could mean for me to, to live a life of faith on my own, sort of outside the constructs of the way I grew up with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, making it your own rather than a top down, here's how we do things, little kid. Totally. Have to do. So when we got to New York, you know, I was sort of back in, in the swing of things and trying to figure out how to be a good husband and dad. And I was lucky enough to, to get the, the GI Bill from my time in the Navy. So that helped sort of the, the more pragmatic considerations of moving to New York City. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was wondering about that. I was like, oh, so you moved to New York City and, uh, you know, start your family. And uh, oh, that's an expensive place to do that. <laughs> it was. And I think it's, uh, you know, for any, any younger people who are interested in, in a career in music, it's, you know, you're always kind of eking by, especially mm-hmm. in the early yeah. years. But, you but know, especially I, in an expensive place. Isn't, yeah, right. Uh, isn't South Bend, isn't St. Louis. Yeah, right, right. So we got really lucky with that. And, um, but, you know, after the first year of, of our time in New York, that, that little stipend that we were getting wasn't cutting it. And I kind of started to think, you know, it'd be really cool if I could make some extra money playing in a church. Yeah. And yeah. I remember we were, it was the summer after we moved to New York City and we had just, we moved back to Buffalo for the summer. Um, and my son Peter was born there in Buffalo. And at the end of the summer, we moved back to New York and I got a call from this friend from IU. He was kind of a mentor of mine and he was a senior when I was a freshman, a pianist. And he was living in New York City and he said, he called me out of the blue and he said, hey, JJ, um, you know, I'm, I saw that, I saw on Facebook that you live in New York City now. I have this church job up in the Bronx and I need to miss this Sunday. Um, mm. I remember that you were Catholic, you know, is there any chance that you could come and uh, and sub for me on this Sunday. And I was like, sure, that'd be great. And so I go up to the rehearsal and we get everything situated. And, and I remember the, the schedule was that there were five masses. There was a seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11, 15 or something. Wow, and two were that's a lot in one morning. <laughs> and so I, I kind of got thrown in and it was, it was really fun though. Like at no point was I like, man, this is exhausting or I hate this. And mm-hmm. And so that was great. And I remember I got like, you know, a, a big check for like, you know, 400 bucks or something. And I was like, man, I only worked for one morning and I got all this money and, and I loved doing it. And I, it, the next day, the, the Monday, um, we were good friends with this group of friars in New York City. And I used to play for all of their liturgies and stuff. And they, one of the friars called me the next day and he said, Hey, I was, I was doing some preaching at this parish in Mount Vernon yesterday. And the pastor told me that he's interested in finding a new uh, liturgical musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be interested in, in me having me putting your name out there? And I said, absolutely. You know, I just, this is crazy because I just subbed yesterday for my friend and I was thinking the whole time how much I would really love to do this. And, yeah. Um, so like within a week, I had went up, I had gone up to interview and had gotten the job and, you know, I started sort of my first full-time uh, church music job. Oh, you were full-time at that point. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, it was full-time for the parish. It wasn't, it wasn't full-time, full-time, like uh, I was working 40 hours a week, but yeah, I was mm-hmm. the only yeah. musician at the place. And, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So kind of just dove in from there. 
but so, so you're in in New York City, and then and then it sounds like you did did more composing, more music making there, and then it, did you go from New York City to South Bend? Yes, yeah. So as I was finishing up my undergrad, um, I was looking at grad schools, and I was interested in either a master's in jazz or this one program that I had heard about at Notre Dame and sacred music. Yeah. And at that point, it was such a stretch for me to even consider doing a master's in something different, but I kind of just thought I would put it out there and see what happens. So I came out to Notre Dame to audition and was fortunate to get in uh, for a master's in conducting. And so, you know, our whole family moved, moved out to South Bend and yeah. And so from South Bend, you know, I, I started to get really into you know, to the nuts and bolts of sacred music and finished up my master's and went, went immediately on to do my doctorate here at Notre Dame and was able to, during my dissertation year, so which, which was my fifth year here at Notre Dame, uh, my family and I moved to Rome for the year where I was uh, researching my dissertation and writing my dissertation. Um, oh, that's awesome. So it was, Notre Dame has been a really great place. And, you know, of course, this job in the full choir opened up right when I was finishing my doctorate and I, you know, was able to get that job also. So South Bend is our home now. Let's, let's talk about the folk choir. Let's talk first for all the Protestants listening. Let's talk about what we mean by a folk choir. Cause it's, it's at least as, as I've heard it, it's really something, a term that's specific to how Catholics talk about sacred music. So let's, let's talk about that. And then let's talk about the Notre Dame folk choir, particularly as, as a shaping force for Catholic music in the U S because you have this group of young people who are going to go back to their parishes, wherever they end up as adults, and be musical leaders in their parishes. So the work that you're doing is maybe not making a change right now, but the choices that you make have this huge pebble into the pond kind of ripple out in, in Catholicism in the U.S. Yeah. So the, the folk choir kind of has a double meaning. Of course, after the Second Vatican Council, there was a, a big movement which was called the folk mass and in which people were incorporating popular folk styles into sacred music. Mm-hmm. And that's not specific to the U S that's global. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the idea, I, th- I think initially the idea of the folk choir was that this is a choir that, that sort of does, you know, it incorporates popular musical forms into the tradition of sacred music. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as the group sort of evolved over its 35, 40 year history, that definition expanded a little bit to incorporate more of what I think is the, the fundamental principle of, or one of the fundamental principles of the Second Vatican Council, which is that the folk choir, folk meaning the people. So the, the choir sort of is representative and includes the voice of the people, the congregation. Do you mean in the sense that the folk choir could sound very different in, say, Atlanta versus Detroit versus Sacramento? That that like is stylistically true. because of different, just different cultures and different kinds of people who make up the individual choir. Yes, yeah, I think so. And in particular, I think the you know the Notre Dame folk choir. At least now, what I'm hoping to do is is to make our repertoire a representation of you know the music of all the folk you know so we have uh, you know folk music has sort of um, always been a part of sacred music i think and is run alongside it and you know the the two things have been deeply intertwined throughout the entire history of sacred music and my sense is that folk music or the folk choir could be an embodiment of what it means for for us to emphasize 
the people's music in a, in a full embodiment of, of what that can mean since the Second Vatican Council. So to include the whole canon of sacred music from before Vatican II, but also to be able to find innovative ways for the congregation to, to have new voice, you know, in, in a way that, ha- that wasn't really able to happen before the Second Vatican Council. To me, it sounds like you're expressing a kind of theology of the global church or the universal church in that we as Christians, not just in Catholicism, but just more, more generally, we Christians tend to think of the church as not just here right now in my local space or here right now in the whole world, but rather like uh, Christianity, the church, capital C church, is all Christians at all times in this um, in an eternal light, like the way we think of the, like the universal church. So it sounds like the way you're talking about folk music is like, it's not just here right now, I'm this kind of person, I sing this kind of music, but like the church, the, the people of the church are all of us at all times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that, that's one of the most difficult things to contend with, I think, being a church music, musician, but also one of the things that can give us hope, you know, it's, especially in a time right now when, when the church is kind of plagued with, uh, the Catholic church is being plagued with all of this scandal and, and, and abuse. It's important to remember that we've, we've come from somewhere, we are somewhere, and we're going somewhere. And I think that um, the, the sense that the church is, is, is for all people at all times um, has an important um, sort of eternal sense to it also. Like, we, you know, we're we are headed somewhere and the place that we're headed is not of this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want, we want to be able to point, point in that direction and, and give ourselves and give each other a place to strive for. And I think that um, by really aiming to embody the full tradition of sacred music, we are, we are able to, you know, point the point in the direction of something that's, that's much wider and broader that can, you know, incorporate, a much fuller sense of what it means to be Christian in, uh, in today's world. Yeah, I, th- I think that if we adopt the the idea, or um, if we believe the idea that the music that we make expresses part of who we are, then intentionally choosing a wide repertoire of music as much as we're able. Of course, you know we're limited by education, by resources, by a lot of things. But choosing a wide array of music as much as we're able is making a theological statement about what we believe the church to be. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And especially in the sense that we, um, in, in the sort of imitative sense in which we have to be able to imitate um, the things that we admire in order to incorporate them into our own lives. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's a, I think a great sort of parallel is when we think about the wisdom of the saints or the wisdom of doctors of the church. Um, there's, there's always something, the things that they've said can always sort of be uh, uh, reframed and understood uh, anew for us now. And I think that sort of same stream of wisdom exists within the, the tradition of sacred music. You know, it's, it might be really difficult to understand what Machaut was, was going for with his masks. But, you know, through a careful study and understanding of what, what he was dealing with and, and trying to create with that music, I think that it can offer something really profound for us today if we approach it with the right posture. This is making me think about the effect that musical training has 
on the kinds of music that we're willing to do or feel that we can do well. So for, for example, like my background is almost exclusively classical, except for the on-the-job training I got as a kid playing in Baptist churches in a very evangelistic or revivalistic piano style. So when I'm choosing music, I often feel, it's, I mean, strangely limited. I think, I think what I'm trying to say is a lot of church musicians say, well, here's what I know, and this is what I know, and aren't necessarily willing to take the time to try other kinds of styles or might feel like, well, I'm never going to be able to do it well, or my choir won't do it well, or it's just going to sound, we're just going to fail at this. So why bother? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. I think that one of the things that I've been really focused on since I've uh, been working with the folk choir has been the idea that uh, it's not enough for me to aspire for the choir to change and to do certain types of repertoire that I would like them to do. I have to be willing to enter into that journey with them and be willing to change with them and be willing to encounter these things anew, the things that I'm hoping to show them and the things that I'm excited about. And I think that's one of the, the difficult things about being, you know, a, a professional musician is that the idea of being limited is, is just as true when you're 20 as, as when you're 40. Um, but, but what kind of posture are we going to approach that with? Am I going to say, well, I can't, I can't do African-American music because I never studied it. it you know, it, like in the sense of what you can study it now. Yeah, I could do it now. And if, and if one of my hopes is that I, I want to be able to point towards something that is more universal, then I'm, I have to put myself in a position where I'm always striving to embody that myself. Otherwise, I won't be able to show anybody else the way. And not just telling your students this is something we should, you should do. You guys yeah, should do that. Yeah, exactly. I find that goes for, for everything that I'm hoping to show them. It's like, you know, it's, as a director, our job is to point, point in the direction that we want to go. But, you know, if we're asking them to sing a phrase beautifully, but we're not showing that with, with every part of our being, then all we're really doing is getting in the way. You know, it's, you, can, you can hope for something as much as you want. But until you're able to truly embody it and live that, you're not really going to be able to produce the, the kind of result that you can imagine. Mm, but you have to imagine it first, don't you? True. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about your music because you're, we're talking about you as a director of the Notre Dame Folk Choir and as a pianist, but you also compose music. And I'm thinking about your O Emanuel and mm -hmm. how stylistically divergent different movements are but how they come together they, they come together to form a big picture and it reminds me a bit of um looking at a painting and if you're looking at something really close up you see oh well this is different from that thing but then you step back and and then the bigger picture is there mm -hmm. yeah i think that this kind of goes back in some ways to my own my own transformation of understanding that i went through when i was moving to notre dame from new york in that I, um, as this thing was being unveiled to me that I could sort of be a sacred musician and uh, it was possible to get this training and, and to move forward with this thing that I, I sort of always dreamed I, or hoped I would be able to do. Uh, there was this other sort of voice that was along for the ride that was saying, you know what, now that you're, now that you're interested in sacred music, you have to let go of jazz and all of this stuff that you've worked towards and focused on for all these years was kind of it, it served a purpose, but it was simply a means to an end. Mm. Oh, you got all this training now. You can do yeah something else. 
Yeah, and and I remember while that was happening, I was ex- I was so disappointed, and I was thinking, man, like, you know, I'm willing to do it because I know that this is the direction I want to go in, but I'm I'm so sad that I won't be able to to kind of do this other thing that I also love. And um, the reason I talk about that is because I feel like anytime I'm being called or we're being called to uh, embrace something new, there's always this kind of I, I, can, I tend to put this limiting sort of framework around it, maybe as a way to coerce myself into the change. But um, mm, Like if I do this, I can't do the, this other thing? Right, right. And I found, you know, so I, I, that was kind of my mindset. But, you know, when I got to Notre Dame, I was, I was lucky to be surrounded by some, some really great people. And, and in fact, the, the director of the program, my first semester here was said, you know, in in different words, you know, you're not, your jazz thing is not over. You know, it's just that it's going to, it's going to expand and it's, you're going to be able to allow it to, to find its way into even more parts of your life than before, which was a fascinating sort of revelation for me because I was coming from a place where I had to let this go. And in fact, the way that I had studied jazz and and come to love this music was, was going to be able to be even more, sort of um, integral, integralistic into my life or integralized into my life. Mm, How so? Um, Because I, I was able to then sort of take, um, take everything I had in jazz and then, and, and take all the things that I was learning about sacred music and put those two things together. And so in a place where I thought, you know, I thought like, Oh, I'll go to, I'll go to Notre Dame and I'll be able to, to do sacred music and then I'll be able to do jazz. And they were distinct uh, entities that. And like, are, were you imagining sacred music as like, I mean, basically what I do? Oh, I'm gonna play some Bach and I'm gonna sit on my organ and, like, it, like is that what your vision of sacred music was? Or yeah, it was. Gregorian chant or. Yeah, it was kind of like the the traditional canon of sacred music, mm. you know, from from Monteverdi and Palestrina up to Bach and Mozart and. Mm-hmm. And like that's what capital G good sacred music is. Right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, in a way I was, by, by approaching it from that angle, I was also limiting the ways that I, I I was limiting the ways that I, that God could sort of speak through the gifts that have been given to me. Um, Because, you know, it is a gift that I, I love jazz, I think. And it, Mm -hmm. and it is a gift that, um, that I'm able to play it. And I've had all this, I have all these opportunities to study it. And, sort of by, by compartmentalizing the way that the ways that I looked at the ways I wanted to use that gift, you know, I, I could have, and I did sort of limit the ways that this sacred music tradition could be proclaimed anew for our day. And so as I was coming to understand this, this new mindset that like, okay, like it's not, it's not bad for me to take jazz and, and incorporate it into the sacred music tradition. Um, I started to compose a lot more and, and Oh, Emmanuel kind of came later in this, this journey that we're talking about. But um, when I was, when I was composing Oh, Emmanuel, I was thinking I had, I had a really great mentor along the way who sort of took me through the process of, of how to make a, a big work like Oh, Emmanuel, a bigger work. And mm-hmm. one of his first pieces of advice was, you know, you, you sort of gather all your texts and you gather, you know, like there's something in you that you're looking to express. So 
let that guide the way that you gathered the text for the bigger piece. And then once you have them all, you can put them out in front of you and just read through them. And it might seem arbitrary, but pick the one that you think resonates with you most right now, you know? And so I remember I picked the, the text of one of the movements and, and he had this whole process that, that he encouraged me to go through, which was to, to start reading it out loud and to try singing it and to read it softly and read it loudly and, and scream it and whisper it. And, and as, as I was doing that, the, the sort of essence of the text um, and one of the ways that I came to understand it became revealed through like the music that was coming into my mind when I was going, when I was like embodying the text like this. And as it was happening, I remember, man, like, you know, I, I didn't think that this was going to turn out like this. I didn't think this piece was going to, was going to be like this. Oh, like in terms of style? Yeah. And I was like, cause I was thinking like, you know, it was a commission and, and I was thinking it would kind of be like pretty formal. And, but as all the while I'm thinking, oh, it didn't, I didn't think it would turn out like this. I was also thinking like, but this is, this is where it's at for this text. Like I, there's no other idea I'm going to get that's going to be better than this one because mm. this is really sort of like where, where I'm at with it. And, and so that, that's sort of like central moment. And that was, that turned out to be the middle movement. So it was the fifth out of nine. And from there I sort of worked forward and backwards and, and just kind of adopted that as a principle that like, you know, everything that I do is up for grabs with this piece. And um, I knew that, I was going to be able to have my trio play play on the piece. It was scored for my trio and some some instruments and the kids' voices. And so I knew that if I was if I if that world was opened up, that we'd we'd be able to execute it and we'd be able to sort of uh, perform it in a way that was going to be uh, a good representation of the ideas that I had about the piece. You know, this is also making me think back to this idea that music can express our beliefs about the universal church, it seems like you're also expressing a um, theological anthropomorphical kind of sta- uh, statement. And I, here's my disclaimer, not a theologian, don't know the right words. <laughs> um, but like you're, you're expressing that, that you yourself are an integrated person, that you are a whole person and that all of you is part of you and not uh, separate compartments. So that in, in the realm of music specifically, all these different kinds of musical things that you do are all you. So while like, you know, me listening and I'm like feeling like I'm zooming in on part of the picture, I'm seeing like one kind of thing or another kind of, or I'm hearing, hearing one kind of style, I'm hearing another kind of style, but actually what I'm hearing is in part an integrated, this is a whole, a whole uh, person who wrote this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of always the, that's what I feel like I'm striving to do. I, you know, and that's, that's one of our goals here at, at Notre Dame too, with the full choir and within campus ministry is that is to, to be a model of integration because, you know, I think that we all know that, that God speaks to, to different people in different ways, but you know, God also speaks to me in different parts of my life in different ways also. And so like my, my music can inform the way that I'm a dad and the way that I'm a husband can inform uh, the way I conduct and, and, you know, all of these sort of like uh, inlets where I am um, putting myself out there are opportunities, I think, for God to show us what we can be 
and, and sort of how, how wonderful this, this life can really be. Music is wonderful like that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. It has been lovely to talk with you. Well, thank you for having me, Sarah. It's been great to meet you and get to know you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on your podcast. Absolutely. Thanks to Dr. J.J. Wright for this conversation. You can find show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 37. And you can find more about J.J. online at jjwrightmusic.com. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Bariza, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church.